Welcome to the Watershed Lit Podcast channel. I'm Greg Wilhelm, Director of Mason Creative Writing at George Mason University. Each semester, we bring six highly acclaimed authors and poets to campus for small group workshops with our MFA students, followed by a public reading in the evening. These events are presented in partnership with Mason Libraries and Watershed Lit, a new center for literary engagement and publishing practice at Mason. In fall 2021, MFA faculty member Halan Habila led a conversation with Tope Falaran. Based in Washington, D.C., Tope Falaran won the Kane Prize for African Writing in 2013 and was named to the Africa 39 list of the most promising African writers under 40. He was educated at Morehouse College and the University of Oxford, where he earned two master's degrees as a Rhodes Scholar. He is the author of A Particular Kind of Black Man. Now we present Halan Habila in conversation with Tope Falaran. Hi, Tope. Good to see you again. Good seeing you as well. How was the class? I enjoyed it. I thought it went pretty well. Um, students were fantastic. We had a really good uh, sort of back and forth about craft and about the, the writer's life. So uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Great. We'll talk some more about that. Yeah. Um, after your reading. But let me begin by introducing you. Tokpe Folarin is a Nigerian American author. His novel, A Particular Kind of Black Man, speaks to the tragically human feeling of loneliness and how all of us simultaneously want to become and fear becoming our parents. Like the author, the book's protagonist is a Nigerian-American who grew up in Utah, Texas, and went to Morehouse College. A reviewer describes the book as an audacious debut, a book that is in many things, that is many things at once, a profound immigration narrative, a moving coming-of-age story, and an appraisal and defense of the novel as an essential 21st century art form. The structure, fluid, slippery, a suspended chord in search of resolution, echoes the journey of the protagonist and indeed of America. In these brilliant, searing, heartbreaking and hopeful pages, Tope Follerin has given us a novel that many of us will revisit for years to come. And now I will hand you over to Tope Follerin for his reading. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, uh, Helan has been a positive force in my life for quite some time. Um, he didn't mention this, but the reason I think I'm convinced the reason one of the reasons I'm sitting here uh, is because I published my first short story back in 2012 uh, and sent it to him. We hadn't met before and he read the story and got back to me and said, I think this is a really strong story. I think you should submit it for the Kane Prize. I actually didn't know I was eligible for the Kane Prize at that point. Um, but I sent the story in and many months later found out that I'd won at a wonderful ceremony at Oxford. So he's been a positive influence in my life since 2012. And I appreciate that introduction. I'm so grateful to George Mason for having me today. Uh, it means the world to be participating in this writer series. I'm a longtime admirer of the MFA program there and had a wonderful time uh, this afternoon with some of the students in the program. So thank you for having me. I figured I'd just read a few pages 
um, from my novel from the beginning. And then I look forward to the conversation with Helen after I conclude. She told me I could serve her in heaven. She accompanied me to school each day. School was about a mile away and a few hundred feet into my trek, just as my family's apartment building drifted out of view behind me. She would appear at my side. I don't remember how she looked. Memory often summons a generic figure in her place, an elderly white woman with bristle gray hair, slightly bent over, a smile featuring an assortment of gaps and silver linings. I do remember her touch, however. It felt cool and papery, disarmingly comfortable on the hottest days of fall. She would often pat my head as we walked together and the penetrating silence would cancel the morning sounds around us. I felt comfortable, protected somehow in her presence. She never walked all the way to school with me, but her parting words were always the same. Remember, if you are a good boy here on earth, you can serve me in heaven. I was five years old. Her words sounded magical to me, vast and alluring. I didn't know her. I barely knew her name, but the offer she held out to me each morning seemed far too generous to dismiss lightly. In class, I would think about what servitude in heaven would be like. I imagined myself carrying buckets of water for her on streets of gold, rubbing her feet as angels sang praises in the background. I imagined that I'd have my own heavenly shack. I'd have time to do my own personal heavenly things as well. How else would I get to heaven? One day I told my father about her offer. We were talking about heaven, a favorite subject of his, and I mentioned that I already had a place there. I've already found someone to serve, I said. What do you mean? Dad smiled warmly at me. I felt his love. I repeated myself. Daddy, I'm going to heaven. And how are you going to get there? I told him about the old lady, my heavenly shack, the streets of gold. My father stared at me a moment, grief and sadness surging briefly to the surface of his face, and then anger. He leaned forward, stared into my eyes. Listen to me now. The only person you will serve in heaven is God. You will serve no one else. My father has told me many times that he settled in Utah because he didn't want to be where anyone else was. His cousins and siblings had left Nigeria for Athens, London, Rome, New York City, and Houston. My father wanted to be an American, but he also craved isolation, so he decided he would travel to a city in America he knew nothing about. He left Nigeria in 1979 after a school in Utah, Weber State University, offered him a place in its mechanical engineering program. His bride, my mother, accompanied him. They arrived in a country that bore little resemblance to the country they expected. My father, a devout fan of television shows like Gunsmoke and Bonanza, was disappointed when he discovered that cowboy hats were no longer in style. And he sadly stowed his first American purchase, a brown 10 gallon hat that he bought during a layover in Houston in his suitcase and under his bed. Mom arrived in America expecting peace and love. She had fallen for the music of the Beatles and the Beach Boys as a high school student in Lagos while listening to the records that her businessman father brought back from his trips abroad. Though she had imagined a country where love conquered all, where black people and black, white people lived together in peace and harmony, mom and dad arrived instead in a place where there were no other black people for miles around, a place dominated by a religion they never heard of before. But this was America, and they were in love. They moved into a small apartment in Ogden, Utah, and started a family. I came first in 1981, and my brother followed in 1983. Dad attended his classes during the day while mom took care of us at home. Occasionally, she explored the city while pushing my brother and me along in a double stroller. Soon enough, we were all walking hand in hand. At night, my parents held each other close and spoke their dreams into existence. They would have more children. My father would start a business. 
they would become wealthy. They would send their children to the best schools. They would have many grandchildren. They would build their own version of paradise on a little slip of desert in a country that itself was a dream, a place that seemed impossible until they stepped off the plane, shielding the sun from their eyes and saw for themselves the expanse of land that my father had idly pointed to on a fading map many years before. Thank you very much. It's so powerful. And it kind of sets the, the tone um, for the rest of the book. Um, but let's start with the title of your book. Yeah. The title. And I read somewhere that this you had a different title and then you changed it. What happened? <laughs> well, the story about my title is that so let me step back a little bit and say that I'm a, a big, big fan of poetry. Um, and I came across a line while I was reading poetry. The line is the proximity of distance. I was completely besotted with that line. I thought this captures what I'm trying to say in my book. You know, it's about sort of closeness, but at the same time being sort of torn apart or far away from something. And so I, for, you know, the entire time I wrote the book, it, that was the title of the book. So what happened was that the weekend, the Friday before the book was about to go to the printer, the head of Simon & Schuster emailed my editor. And I guess, I don't know if he was sitting in his office and reviewing the titles or something, but he apparently emailed my editor and said, this is not it, come up with a new title. And so my editor and I were both surprised. I saw the email, I assumed the book was going off to the printer. I was excited. I was like, you know, getting ready to see my book in the world. And he said, you know, he's given us until Monday to come up with a new title. So my editor and I just kind of emailed back and forth all weekend, potential titles. We ripped, you know, sort of phrases from the book. Um, and I think it was Sunday morning that he emailed me. He emailed me like a bunch of lines from my book. And one of them was a particular kind of black man. And I saw that and I, I you know, showed it to my, my wife and she's like, yeah, I think that's it. And I felt the same way. So I emailed it back to him and said, I think this is the title. And he had, you know, like a couple of minutes later, emailed me back and said, I think this is the title. So we both agreed that that was what worked best. The head of Simon and Schuster side on Monday approved it, and we were off to the races. Nice, I think it worked well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So were there a lot of these changes, editorial is intrusions? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I spoke a little bit about this during my session with the students earlier today. Uh, so when my book was finally acquired by Simon and Schuster, I was, you know, like anybody in that position, I imagine, I was super. Uh, excited about it. And I thought, okay, finally, somebody sees the vision. And, you know, and you've done this many times, I'm sure, Helen, you have that call with the editor, and they're kind of gassing you up. And they're like, this is great. Here's why I like the book. You know, it's lovely. And I'm just going to send you your, you know, a copy, a PDF with a few changes or whatever. And you're like, yeah, yeah, great, great. And so they sent me the thing. And my editor had X'd out like the middle sort of 60 pages of the book, like a big red X's through this the, the middle and I was completely shocked and angry. I was furious because, you know, what he described as, you know, little changes seemed to me like this insurmountable thing that I had to do. And so, you know, I kind of quickly try to rewrite 60 pages. I send them to him. He said, no, this is not it. Um, and then I did it again. He said, this isn't it. And then he called me and said, you know, he said, my advice to you is that you just kind of step back for a couple months mm -hmm. and then come back to it. And I'm sure the kind of solution to this will will appear to you. And, you know, we didn't talk, my editor and I didn't talk for a couple months because I was just so angry with him. And I thought, you know, I, I hate you. I don't want to work with you anymore. You're the worst human being who's ever walked the face of the earth. <laughs> but then one day, I think I was jogging, actually, and the kind of solution just dropped into my head out of nowhere. And so I sprinted back home. 
sat in front of my laptop. I typed nonstop for like, I don't know how many hours, um, stepped away from the work, came back to it, made some quick revisions. And then I sent it to him and he, he, he got back to me within an hour and said, you know, you've solved it. This is it. And so, uh, that was a major change. And, um, but it was the perfect, you know, like he forced me to kind of reconceptualize my novel and he forced me to reconceptualize in the direction that I wanted to. I think what he discovered and maybe through our conversations and everything else was that I had kind of big ambitions, both for the story and the plot, but more important than that, from my perspective anyway, for the kind of structure of the book, I wanted to do something that I hadn't seen done before. And I was super keen, you know, a lot of times, and I've said this in other places, I think a lot of people in the publishing world, that means editors and, you know, people who work with editors and then the marketing public, I think they look to writers of color for like stories sometimes. They're like, okay, I need a story about my taxi driver. I need a story about what's happening, you know, in Africa. I need a story. Give me a story. And so a lot of times, you know, they'll, if you give them a story that they recognize or that is comprehensible to them, Mm -hmm. they'll sort of glom onto that and put that out. But if you're interested in somebody interested in like innovating what the novel needs, you know, which is something that I'm deeply interested in, you know, not only sort of, you know, like <laughs> white dudes from Brooklyn are interested in that. I am as well. Yeah. And so I think my my editor got that. And when I told him about my structural ambitions for the book, I think he kind of really pushed me to the edge. We were talking about some of the books that were out at the moment, like, you know, Rachel Cusk's work and, you know, work by Knossgaard and these folks and the fact that I'd read all their books and was I was interested in doing, you know, kind of exploring that territory and even extending some of the arguments they were they were making in their work. And I think my editor was one of the very few people who saw me as somebody who was capable of doing that, not just somebody who's going to give a story about, you know, like Black people doing Black things. And so kudos to him for really pushing me on that front. And I'm so happy with that because I think I arrived at the book that I, I wanted to write. That's interesting. I'm glad you kind of raised all these um, you know, important issues, especially for writers of color. Some people have described your book as an immigrant narrative. Yeah. And I understand that you reject that kind of <laughs> description of your book. Is that right? I reject it out of hand. You know, it's funny <laughs> because that's the, it's so interesting. And there are a couple stories here. So one, one of the first reviews that came out of my book was in Harper's, which for me was incredible. Like I love Harper's. I, I subscribed to Harper's for years when I was in college and afterwards and um, love the Harper's index. I, you know, I know that that magazine like the back of my head. And so when I heard that was getting reviewed in Harper's. I like, I ran out and, you know, my publicist sent me the review. And I think it's in the opening couple lines to say, you know, this immigrant, you know, this immigrant to America. And I was like, what? Like, you know, it was, and and the reviewer was Julian Lucas, uh, a person of color. So I was surprised that, um, that they read it that way. Um, and even my publisher, you know, outside of my editor, they arranged this, um, they, they arranged for somebody to interview me at the launch of my book at Politics and Prose here in DC, um, who's somebody who had written, you know, sort of immigrant stories before. And so it was obvious that even, and when my publisher was trying to, you know, one thing that a publisher will do when a book is about to come out is they'll suggest that you write op-eds or pieces to kind of help promote the book. And they said to me, like, you should write about this immigration thing that's happening. And I'm happy to do that. You know, like during my, during the day, I think about and write about policy a lot. So I'm pretty conversant in, you know, kind of policy and, and can summon an argument if necessary. But my book isn't about an immigrant. It's definitely about somebody who's growing up in this country um, and is having all kinds of struggles with respect to his identity. And so um, for me, it was somewhat disconcerting that my publishing house saw it as an immigrant tale, that some mm-hmm. of the, you know, some of 
the folks who are reviewing the book saw it as an immigrant tale, even though the page, the, the book explicitly says that the protagonist is not an immigrant. You know, he talks about being born in America. He talks about, you know, spending his entire life in America. He talks about the fact that he's sad that he hasn't gone to Nigeria. The end of the book is about him going to Nigeria for the first time. So it's all premised on the idea that he's born and raised in this country. And it just goes back to what I was saying before. You know, I have a foreign sounding name, you know, people here in Nigeria associated with me and they're like, okay, this is an immigrant narrative. And it says that um, a lot of people who evaluate literature, when they pick up the book, they're already reading the book through a particular lens. You'll yeah. excuse my use of that word, but they're sort of, you know, they're tuned, they're thinking, okay, this is an immigrant tale. And they don't read the book on its own terms. And that happens to human beings all the time, right? You read a book by whatever description it may have or by its cover or whatever else. In the same way, you take a human being and a human being come, appears before you and you say, okay, based on your phenotype and your name and who I think your parents might be, this is the person you are. And so, you know, when I was on book tour, you know, the kind of couple months before the pandemic hit, I was at pains to say to people that, no, this is a story about somebody who's growing up in America. And I think it says too, that in certain ways I was kind of entering a new category because again, I think people have become really accustomed to reading books from, you know, people from Africa, whether it's Nigeria or some other country in Nigeria about people coming over to America or books about stuff that's happening in um, somewhere in Africa. But uh, for whatever reason, even though there are so many of us, how many of us, not only Nigerian American, Ghanaian American, you know, sort of uh, South African, there's so many people from uh, who were born in this country or born in Canada or born in some, some European country whose parents are from the continent and who have had to negotiate all kinds of weird and strange things as they grow up in these new contexts. And so there are a lot of us who are aching to tell our stories and even though the irony, of course, is that I, I'm published and I'm talking to you as a published writer, but the whole machinery of the publishing world was not ready to kind of accept me as somebody who was an American, which I yeah. find really ironic and painful as well. Yeah. I guess sometimes it's all about marketing. Yeah. They just want the easy um, handle to put yeah. in a book so they can market it. Exactly. So let's talk about autofiction. Yeah. Um, you visited my class last semester. Yeah. We read one of your essays in which you you talked about autofiction and how you see the place of writers of color as um, sometimes being misunderstood yeah. when they try to um, write autofiction, which yeah. is mostly associated with white writers. Yeah. Um, how do you situate your book? I think that my book is, I you know, when I call it autofiction, it's certainly inspired by autofiction. No doubt about that. I mentioned before that I was reading lots of Cusk and Penobscot and these folks who write, you know, um, Ben Lerner's work as well, um, Tedrick Cole's work, you know, all these people who kind of write autofiction. So, but I was trying as well to, to do something else. I need to come up with a name, marketing handle. I need to come up with a name for what I, <laughs> what I think I did. But it goes without saying, I think it, that I, I was drawing from my life in writing my book, without a doubt. I also had questions about the way that reality is constructed and the fact that reality seems to be super malleable, um, at least you know for me and for a number of people who are kind of confused about the current state of affairs, whether it's politics or or climate change, whatever else, you know, one response to climate change is to burrow into a hole and say it's not happening. And so, and then, you know, as the world kind of descends into chaos around you, you can kind of believe that for whatever reason, or one response to 
the pandemic is to say, let me take this pill that has nothing to do with it, you know, like viruses and perhaps I'll be healed by taking it. I'm interested in the way that we're manipulating reality constantly. And the fact that we have all these tools that enable us to do it, you know, sort of much easier than, than we were able to before. And so I was kind of drawing from those traditions and attempting to kind of render something new on the page. And the point that I was making in my article is that there seems to be space. So autofiction, again, it's, it's a movement that's out there, but unlike a lot of literary and artistic movements in general, it wasn't launched by a group of artists sitting together in a room, you know, sort of saying what's going on with the world, let's, or gathering in a virtual space, whatever the equivalent of that may be, and saying, what's happening right now? We don't agree with it. Let's like write up a manifesto and then let's kind of attempt to kind of go according, like write according to this manifesto and then we'll depart from it if it doesn't make sense. But this can be a starting point for new explorations of art. Um, that didn't happen. What happened with autofiction is that you have a, a few critics, mostly in New York, who say, wow, this stuff is happening. Let's call it autofiction. Um, let's kind of group these writers together. The irony, again, in this case, is that a bunch of writers who are called autofiction writers don't agree with the label. They don't think they're writing autofiction, but they've been labeled thus. They've been labeled so by by critics. And so critics have all this power to kind of determine who is at the new, who's at the vanguard of new writing. And and because let's be frank, there are there aren't many sort of critics of color who have a lot of influence and power in the world. You have a collection of critics who, you know, kind of emerge from certain literary traditions who are accustomed to engaging with certain kind of work. And um, and they see, you know, sort of some people writing in this tradition and they group them together. These people get all the plaudits and the notices and, you know, they get to all sit in, you know, sort of really exciting literary conversations or podcasts and talk about the exciting work they're doing. All the while, you have writers of color who are doing all kinds of innovative things. Like I've yet to read the kind of big piece on sort of the craft developments in African writing, let's say, over the course mm -hmm. of the past five years. I mean, I think that would be a really interesting piece because there's been so much exciting African writing that's emerged from the continent. But whenever that writing is evaluated, it's evaluated purely from a place of story. Yeah. You know, here's what happened in the story. Interesting, but not about the craft. Yeah. And I've had the great honor of uh, sitting with some of the great, you know, writers, I think of my generation in workshops uh, on the continent and here, some of them by some of them um, arranged by the Kane Prize, some of them by Kimbilio, you know, another collective for writers of color. And we, when we sit together and talk about work, the first thing we talk about is craft. You know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's like, how are you getting this pair? How did you do that? How did you get that sentence to sing the way it does? How did you do that thing that where you leap back in time and then go forward? And it's frustrating for us that our work is never evaluated that way. It's always evaluated purely from a story perspective. And it says that people are trying to, you know, sort of take the story from us and then leave everything else aside. And so I think that what I'm waiting for and, and part of what I try to do in my critical work is to say there's something exciting happening from a critical perspective in this work that needs to be evaluated. Right. And part of the point I made in that piece as well is that, you know, there's always one or two who are kind of allowed to enter the door. I talk about Teju Cole um, and I point out that in the first couple of pages of, of Open City, he kind of lists all of these like thinkers and those European thinkers and writers and composers. And to me, it was akin, I know I've done this before. So this is why I labeled it. So in my piece, it was like mm -hmm. the really smart black kid in a all white class who's trying to impress the teacher and say, I know all your history, take me seriously as a thinker. I had the, the sense that Tejuko was doing that. 
over the course of the first couple of pages of that book to to say to people, take me seriously. And that's not at all to malign his talent. I think he's um, incredibly talented and he's he's a really great writer. But I think he recognized that you have to speak on their terms in order to be taken seriously. Or Tao Lin is, you know, who's kind of in Brooklyn and around a lot of these folks, so they kind of take him seriously. So a couple of people are allowed to enter the kind of inner sanctum of high literature, if you will, and and opine on the future of literature. But for the rest of us, we're meant to kind of tell stories, and then we're, they pat us on the head and send us on our way. And so part of what I was saying is that there's all this exciting stuff that's bubbling, it's bubbling up, it's happening, and it needs to be evaluated. And whether it's called autofiction or it's called something else, then let's take it seriously. Let's take it seriously from a craft perspective. Well said. Let's talk about craft. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's talk about your characters. I'm linking this with autofiction as well. Um, how much of your characters are from life and how much uh, you know are purely fictional? Or is it kind of an amalgam of the of the two? I think it's an amalgamation. I, I, so I started this novel. I didn't know I didn't do an MFA, I should say at the outset. Um, I did a kind of personal MFA, like reading all the books behind me, like again and again and again. I had like a kind of list of writers I was sort of obsessed with. And I read those writers constantly. And I like I, I evaluated their stories. I try to break down their stories to try to get a sense of how they achieve what they achieve. And so I over the course of many years of doing this, I think I began to get a sense of how I wanted to structure my stories. And one thing I did as well was that I'd go on YouTube and I'd listen to, I, you know, one of the great advantages of living in DC is that there's so many readers, writers who come to town and read their work. And so we talked about this a bit in the green room. I go to the library of Congress and they'd have bring in writers from Latin America or Africa. And I go see all of them. I was always at politics and prose. I was always at Kramer books. I was always at busboys and poets here. And so I went to like all these readings um, just to like, listen to people talk about their work. And I went on YouTube as well, and I'd listen to writers talk and watch writers talk about their work. And one thing that a lot of them seemed to say was that, you know, they would they would write, and then over some time, you know, they would notice that the the characters they were writing about kind of took on their own personas. And that sounded like a bunch of mumbo jumbo to me when I was like, you know, in the process of of learning how to write, when I was in the process of learning craft. And so when I started my book, I started I thought I was writing a memoir. I wrote it from an explicitly autobiographical place. And I was just writing for my life. But I discovered as I wrote that the character Tunde, who was initially called Tope, um, was doing all kinds of things that I'd never done, was having thoughts I'd never had, was engaging with people in a way that I don't engage with people. And so it came to me maybe after two years that I was actually writing a novel. And that was frightening to me because I had no idea how to write a novel. You know, I've read more than my fair share, but like the prospect of trying to write a novel seemed just incredibly frightening. But I thought, okay, let me just follow this character and see where he goes, and we'll see if we can make something of it. And, and that's more or less what I did. A long way of saying that there are lots of parts of this book that are drawn directly from life, but I think as the narrative progresses, progresses uh, Tunde begins to do his own thing. And one of the most powerful sections in the book, the towards the ending, you have, um, I think the last chapter is set in Lagos. And I understand that you had never been to Lagos before you wrote that section, or was it? Yeah, I started writing it. You know, it's funny. I started writing it before I went to Lagos. And the way I wrote the, that last, because not to give anything away in my book, but um, there's a point in the book where my protagonist thinks that he's kind of losing his touch, losing his connection to reality. And so it kind of goes down a different pathway. And the, the way I wrote the last chapter was basically I pulled uh, sentences and sections directly from earlier parts of my book 
to create Lego. So it's a legacy of his mind. If you go to the book and read the, the last chapter and compare it to earlier parts of the book, you'll see sentences and phrases kind of lifted directly from earlier parts of the book. And the argument I was making from a craft perspective is because he hasn't been to Nigeria. He's the, he, he's only kind of been to Nigeria in his mind, you know, the Nigeria mm-hmm. that his parents talk about, the Nigeria that he's read in the newspaper or in other kinds of books. Um, and so he's kind of creating Nigeria out of nothing, more or less. Um, and even the description of his mother when he meets her is lifted directly from a description of his mother uh, in the past. And so it's a Nigeria that's constructed of memory, of engagement with media, and of of imagination, right? Yeah. And so I started writing it. When I when I started writing it, I was written directly from that place. I hadn't been to Nigeria since I was like three months old. I went to Nigeria when I was very young and never went again. And so I was writing it from that place. And and because I was at a loss, that's why, and because I wanted to kind of make an argument about the way um, we construct realities all the time. I thought it'd be interesting if my character constructed a reality as well from everything he'd written before. And so it starts from that place. And then I had an opportunity. I won the Kane Prize and I went to Nigeria and I was shocked. You know, it's a really funny and fascinating thing how the narrative I wrote began to play out in my life. It was scary, actually. You know, I try to write about this meeting my mother again and all of a sudden and like how it would be. And, you know, like it was like a movie. And in the end, I wrote like I write kind of in a movie sense because I want to emphasize to the reader that this is constructed perhaps right like this might not be the way things could actually happen but the way that things way that he wants things to happen and then i go to nigeria and all of a sudden i'm like what's happening you know like my cousin's taking me to see my mom uh my mom is living in this place it kind of resembles the place i wrote about there's something magical right yeah yeah about the craft of sitting down and trying to construct reality you know i think magical magical is the word is absolutely magical about that that's yeah, it. I mean, we're all we're all we're all wizards. Let's admit, it. we're all like, <laughs> and, and I think if you kind of sit and concentrate on something for a while, I think there's you have the possibility, the the power, perhaps even to create something. And mm-hmm. I found that that's what happened in my life. That like this thing that I created was beginning to mirror what was happening in my in my real life. Um, and so that was for me an especially powerful moment. Yeah. I'll soon be taking questions from from our audience. I see we have um, two questions here already waiting. I don't want to monopolize the questions, but I just wanted to kind of point out how how you use plays um, to create the, most of the tension in the book, especially at the beginning when we have young Tunde at home. He's basically living in a kind of mini Nigeria. You know, Nigerian yeah. food. His father telling him about Nigeria. His mother, everything. And then once he steps outside, he's in Utah. It's a totally yeah. different world out there. So place is very important and how he negotiates it and tries to make, make sense of it. And then later, of course, he leaves Utah and moves to Texas and all of that. And we keep seeing this um, effort by, by this young person to, to understand who he is, his identity, his personality. So here is um, a question from the audience. Um, this one is from one of your students today, you mentioned in class that you originally wanted to be a poet and still prefer to use poetic language in your fiction. Do you ever get told that it's too much? How do you find a balance between poetry and prose? Such an excellent question. Uh, gosh, I would love an editor for tell, to tell me that I'm using too much poetry and I'd be like, yes, I've written the poem. I've written the poem. Bye. Let me go be a poet again. Um, 
poetry is just so important to me, you know, because the thing is, I came to it kind of sideways. I was not, when I was in high school, I hated poetry class. You know, I remember reading, and I and I love John Donne now, not to hate on him at all, but, you know, you kind of engage with like older poets and you're like, I don't know what this has to do with my life. This is weird. I don't like it, whatever. And I remember like going over the sonnet and I was like, oh, okay. But then I, when I started writing later on, I was actually living in Europe. I was working at Google uh, in London. And so um, I was spending a lot of my spare time, like trying to figure out, find my way into writing. And I was reading a lot. And I noticed that a, a lot of my favorite writers were also poets. So like I was reading Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson. And I was just kind of struck by the language in that. Like it really had a profound impact on me. Um, and there were other books that I read as well. And I was like, why? I, I love the imagery in here. What's going on? How do they do this? Um, and I went online and saw they'd, they'd all been poets before. And so that's how I started. I said, okay, like, because it was a means to an end for me. Like, I want to write the way they write. So let me go, like, read a couple poems and I'll go back to prose. And I fell completely into the poetry hole and did nothing but write poetry and read poetry for a couple of years. And and it was important for me because I renegotiated my relationship with with language, language before had been something that I, I simply used, you know, like uh, here is a way of conveying this, here's a way of doing that. But then after that deep uh, engagement with poetry, I, I think I began to inhabit language in a way that I hadn't before. I began to live within language. I began to, I was sensitive to the way language moves and the kind of truly evocative power of language as well in a way that I hadn't been before. And so that was for me, very, very important. And so I have to say, when I evaluate a piece of prose, like for example, as, as I was reading all those wonderful entries that the students gifted me with before class, I, I usually read it first, I think as a poet, because I'm always very attuned to what's happening on a language level. And I've had to train myself to say, okay, what's happening in terms of other craft you know, elements here? Like, how do I evaluate this from other crafts perspective? craft perspectives but yeah. um you know like poetry is remains really important to me um and it kind of resets everything you know one thing i like to do before i start my day because is that i'll take a, a my poetry book off my my shelf and read a poem because it kind of again it, a poetry is I, I think of it like poetry is sort of like a cat and prose is a dog you know like prose <laughs> you know will come to you like if you read a piece of prose it comes to you it says here's what I want, you know, it wags its tail, it, it, it sticks its tongue out, you know, and 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 uh, poetry like a cat is off in the corner. It says, "Come to me," you know, "Come, you know, come pet me." And poetry like it forces you to come to it in a way. It says, you know, I'm not going to reveal my charms to you on the first read. You'll have to read me four or five times before you get a sense of what's happening here. And it's so it's an exercise in close reading. Reading it's an exercise in engagement with, you know, sort of art, you know, it says contemplate what's happening here. And so that's the way I try to approach writing as well. And so, yeah, if, if an editor said there's too much stuff of that, I, I might kind of take that away and try to <laughs> and put that in my, in my long gestating poetry collection that I've been working on. Well, I'm glad, you know, it comes to you when you call it. They, <laughs> they, they, they don't come when I call them. I have to go get them <laughs> right. all the time. <laughs> They're all cats to me. <laughs> They're all cats. <laughs> what books or writers are you reading now? What speaks to you in literature? Gosh, what a what a question. Um, there's a lot that, what am I reading right now? I guess I'm still um, reading as much, you know, African fiction as I can just to kind of remain attuned to what's happening on the continent 
So I read this wonderful book called Travelers. It's just, a, it's an incredibly captivating <laughs> book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, great book. Loved it. Had the honor of uh, speaking with you about it uh, at the launch. Uh, it's really, the, the sense of pacing and prose is, is wonderful. And I've been reading. Showing just came out. We're talking Sorry. about Shoinka's new book. Oh, yes. I read Shoinka's new book. Yeah, I had the, the pleasure of writing a blurb about it for Vulture. Um, interesting book. I, you know, I always learn stuff from Shoinka. I have to say when I was in grad school, I read all of his, most of his plays anyway, and I uh, yeah. was completely changed by them. So he's certainly a giant and his memoirs, he had a trilogy of memoirs that came out a few years ago as well that I engaged with. Um, I've been reading some Roth recently, despite myself. I, I often go back. One, one of the books that I read all the time is The, the Counter Life, and I love reading that book. So been reading that again recently. I like reading Paul Auster as well. I always go back to short stories. And so I'm always reading Alice Munro. I've my favorite, one of my favorite writers of all time is Deborah Eisenberg. Um, so mm -hmm. I always read her stories all the time. I was actually just dipping into a story from, uh, it's called A Flaw in the Design. And it's in Twilight of the Superheroes, which is a collection that came out before this last collection. I read that uh, story all the time. Um, you know, Edward P. Jones, his, I'm always reading his work. I'm always trying to learn more from him. Um, and so I find myself kind of going back to the stories that I know all that I've read. You know, Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin. Gosh, I mean, I am. I, I, I have to admit that the, end, the last part of my book is directly inspired by the last kind of few pages of Sonny's Blues, where there's this kind of ecstasy that happens. You know, the, the story really lifts off. The language is just blazing. It's incredible. Um, and I have to admit that I am... You know, I, for a long time, I was one of these people who preferred his prose to his fiction. I mean, his nonfiction to his fiction. Um, but as I grow older, I have a deeper appreciation for the fiction. Yeah, it's it's the truth. It's the truth. It's such an incredible, I will always go back to the last few pages of that. I read, you know, the, I read the entire story and I'm always anticipating, like, we're going to get to the, the top of the roller coaster when the story really takes off. So yeah. it's a fantastic, and Bolaño as well. I love his stories. Oh, so yeah. I've been reading a lot of his stories as well. Yeah. So short story or novel, which one is your absolute favorite? Form? Wow. <laughs> That's hard to answer. I would have to say, I, I had to force myself to start reading novels again because I was working on a novel. But stories are really important to me. You know, like I am partial to the writers who have spent their careers working on stories. I think there's something that's really noble about that, something I deeply admire. Because stories, as we all know, are incredibly difficult. Like it's hard to kind of get it to sing, to move. Um, and it's accomplishment. Like I wrote some of my early stories uh, as the kind of conversational piece, the stories that I was reading and really loved. So as a, as a brief example, one of my favorite stories is called The Store. And it's by Edward P. Jones. Mm -hmm. And the reason I love this story, it's a story about a, a young man who is, um, you know, kind of wayward. And then he starts working at a store and he grows to love the store, everything about the store, the people who come by and buy stuff. Uh, the person who owns the store, he meets somebody he starts dating at the store. I love the story because before the climax, it's a very kind of, you know, he somehow imbues um, these kind of everyday stuff, everydayness, if you will, with magic, right? Like, it's just about the transaction of like, you know, somebody coming in the store, buying something as he's, you know, monitoring the, the goods in the store and what needs to be, you know, sort of uh, restocked and what what isn't selling. And I'm like, how am I reading this story? And how am I captivated by something that if I described it to someone else sounds incredibly boring? Mm -hmm. 
And so I wrote a story that actually made, I put it into the novel called The Summer of Ice Cream. That was basically based on that, like something I wanted to like, to do what Edward P. Jones had done. Um, and so I find that constantly in my, as I, and I'm writing a novel now, I am still inspired by the stuff that I see in fiction, whether it's it's language, like Eisenberg again, I think is just like supremely talented at language. And so I'll go to her to kind of get a sense of how to like to frame something or to describe something. Um, or if I'm looking for that beautiful image. Um, I always talk about Tomasz Tronstromer as well. He's a poet, but um, he's, he's always finds his way into my work. But I, I would say that I've been reading way many more novels because I'm working on a novel. And so I guess at this particular point in time, I'm more of a novel person, but stories are my backbone. Yeah. I ask you because I was telling my students in class that I have friends, novelists, who tell me they don't read novels anymore. They just don't have the time. Really? <laughs> read stories. Yeah. No, it's it's quite interesting. interesting. Novelists who don't read novels. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another question. Can you talk about how you balance fiction writing with your other professional interests? Oh my gosh. Can you tell yeah. me how Where I do, do you find the time? <laughs> and the babies, you have two kids. <laughs> Life is crazy right now. I think I've just resolved that there's going to be like a kind of maybe five to 10 year period where I'm not sleeping a lot, you know, because of all the stuff I'm not trying to do. So I had a schedule that made sense before the pandemic, you know, I'd go to work and then I'd come back and hang out with, you know, the kids and my partner and then watch the most ridiculous hour of television because to clear the mind out. And then I'd write from like 10, maybe to 12 or one. And I try to write like 500 words a day. And then the pandemic happened and everything, there was no, there were no longer, there's no longer any lines of demarcation between the various parts of my life. Everything bled into everything else. And that made life more difficult. I have to say the first few months of the pandemic, I didn't write much at all, much to my shame. And then I started keeping a journal um, just to try to kind of stay in the habit of writing. Um, and so I'd say now that I am still trying, I just started this job at a place called the Institute for Policy Studies, which is a think tank in DC. And I run the think tank. And so that has been taking up a lot of my brain space and brain power. But I've been trying to find, I'm I, I'm happy to say that the past month, I've been settling back into my rhythm of writing every night, writing fiction every night. And so um, I think it just, and I take, I know there are a number of people who do, you know, juggle different things. And so mm -hmm. I'm learning how to do that, I suppose. I also teach uh, spring semesters. Um, so that's another thing that I, I have to think about. But I, I, for me, they all kind of help each other. I have to say that when I'm during the day, I'm thinking about, you know, what, you know, Congress is doing and, and how we might sort of impact that process. I find that my fiction is entering that, like I'm thinking about, hmm, this is really, a, this person is a character. <laughs> this person deserves to be in a book. And then at night, you know, I, I'll find that some of the concerns I have during the day about, you know, climate or inequality or race or whatever else is finding its way into my work. So I think it's a generative relationship at this point. Yeah. And I guess if you love something, you always find time for it. Yeah. Yeah. And here is another question. This one is about your novel. Yeah. Can you tell us about the shift in Tunde's quantity of writing with the passage of time? How did you choose when to have him impose distance in his writing between himself and his reader slash others? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, again, to speak as carefully as I can to not give away anything in the book, but I think at a certain point, he begins to feel exi exiled from his circumstances and from his environment. And he's really grappling with that. And so I mentioned before, there's a moment 
when he's in college where he begins to question his reality. He begins to have something he calls double memories. And I was thinking specifically, explicitly of, you know, sort of double consciousness, Du Bois and all that stuff, all the France Manon that I read when I was in grad school and before. And it's funny that not a single reviewer sort of talked about it. I thought it was like heavy handed actually, but nobody mentioned it ever. But I was thinking about that as a kind of metaphor for the experience of being a person who's growing up between two or more worlds, like the experience of like just grappling with all these experiences and identities and stuff. Um, and then I wanted to give the reader a choice, you know, to kind of either think of what happens from that point on as pure sort of imagination or something that's grounded in reality or both. And I wrote an essay in Lit Hub about this exactly, exact point. And so one of the things that happens after this moment is that he meets a woman um, who is named Noel. Before, Tunda spent a lot of time talking about his obsession with Lauren Hill. He loves her music. He loves the way she looks. He'd say, you know, he says he'd date her if he could. And then he starts dating this woman named Noel, who has dreadlocks and looks like Lauren Hill. And as it happens, Lauren Hill's middle name is Noel, Lauren Noel Hill. And so if you're attuned to that, you might, you know, be attuned to the fact that she's a creation. It's like Pygmalion, like that's one of the stories that I loved, or Pinocchio, a story about somebody who creates, you know, some something and falls in love with that thing. And so I wanted to kind of echo that in my book, the possibility that my protagonist, Tunic, has created something whole cloth out of his imagination and falls in love with it falls in love with it. And there are other clues throughout, you know, he introduces her by saying, now the joy of my world is in Noel. Now, if you are as obsessed with Lauren Hill as he is, you'll recognize that lyric instantly from track number four of the miseducation of Lauren Hill uh, called to Zion. Now the joy of my world is in Zion. And so there are all kinds of clues throughout that part of the book that she might be a figment of his imagination. And so I wanted to explore the possibility that he's just kind of playing in his mind entirely. And that's, again, why at the end of the book, it's purely more or less constructed from prior parts of the book to show that, you know, he might have, he might, it's impossible that he's lost it entirely, or it's possible that he's kind of achieved a new realm of understanding. And so, yeah, and so, again, this is all craft stuff that nobody, yeah. you know, if you're just reading for, you know, like the immigration story, you might yeah. not see but. <laughs> so we're getting close to our time. So yeah. I would take just one more question um, before we wrap up. How would you describe your writing process? Yeah, it's I. And sorry, I'm um, sorry to interrupt you, but okay. there's a kind of um, appendix to this question. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk about what you do when the writing gets hard, writers block, or feeling stuck in a draft, out of steam with an idea, etc. So you know, general writing process. Yeah, I think for me, the word count has been super helpful, like the kind of keeping a word count in mind, like either I'm going to try to do 500 words a night, or if I have more time, I'll try to go a bit longer. Because like, it, reaching that word count pushes me past everything else, you know, and because like many writers, like most, perhaps all writers, you know, I know that my first draft isn't where I want it to be. It's not the quality that I want for my writing. It's not something that I want to show to people. And so initially I'd be hung up on that, like, gosh, you know, this is horrible. This sentence is tragic. What am I doing with my life? This is horrible. But when I imposed like this kind of sort of this rule on myself, you know, this idea that I'm going to produce 500 words a day, that's for me when my writing started really taking off because I just began to think of the words as like sand. Like I'm just trying to get as much sand in the sandbox as possible. I can shape a castle later, but I need sand in order to make that castle. And so I'm just trying to get as many words on the page as possible. You know, the thing that I do now is that for the novel I'm writing now, I've outlined it. 
which is something I generally don't do, but I've outlined it just so I have like a general every night. I have a, a direction and, and what I'll do in my draft is that I'll write my 500 words and then I'll write a brief note to myself. Okay, pick, I, this is where I need to pick up tomorrow when I, when I start writing again. Um, and so it's going in the general direction of it. And I've discovered, like we all discover when we write that certain things happen that I never anticipated. And I'm not afraid to go down those alleyways, you know, cause I've found that there's a lot of rich stuff in the alleyways. Um, and I'm happy to kind of spend time there if it leads in a really wonderful direction. Um, but for me, I don't even, I don't even think about writer's block. I just produce as many words as I can. And then I go back to it and I'll, you know, and I find sometimes I've written this stuff and there's a nugget there on page 45 that is what the novel actually is. And so I can delete everything else and pursue that path where it leads me. Yeah, great answer. Well, Tokpe, thank you. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for all your, um, for the answers and for the class earlier. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a wonderful honor. I really enjoyed speaking to all of you, to those of you who are here from our, our afternoon session. That was such a wonderful moment for me. And I am deeply appreciative to George Mason for having me as well. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this Watershed Lit podcast. Visit this Mason Creative Writing channel again for more content soon. For more information about the Center for Literary Engagement and Publishing Practice, go to watershedlit.gmu.edu.